Welcome to the Outer Realm with Michelle DeRoche and Amelia Passano. Airing live on the United Public Radio Network, 105.3 FM in New Orleans. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Outer Realm Wednesday night segment. We are broadcasting live on the United Public Radio Network, UFO Paranormal Radio Network, 105.3 FM from the Gulf Coast, 107.7 FM from New Orleans. We are fully sponsored by the amazing people over at Folgers Coffee who have been with us since day one. And that's, you know, 400 plus episodes now. So we're really grateful to you, Folgers. Thank you so very much. Also, big thank you to Dr. Snick, the sonic surgeon, a.k.a. Justin Snicker, for his contribution of his time, his voice, and his music for the intro that you just heard. Uh, he is an award-winning composer of Halloween, horror, sci-fi, and dark wave electronic music, which can be found in all of your favorite music platforms. Also, big thank you to Steve McGinnis, the artist behind our banners and logos here at the show. Check him out on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, does a lot of great commission pieces and, of course, specializes in the horror genre as well. So tonight you'll see Amelia's not with us. Let's send her some good vibes. She's under the weather. Tis the season, of course. So, you know, big boo. But I know she'll be listening in. So like I said, let's send her some really good vibes and get her all healed up and back on track. So tonight, I'm really excited about tonight's show. Uh, Michael Laflemme, um, amazing, amazing author, amazing researcher. He's written a book called Visions of Atlantis, Reclaiming Our Lost Ancient Legacy. And let's face it, isn't Atlantis like one of you know the world's like biggest mysteries? I mean, everybody has done movies about it. Everybody's talked about it, written about it, and we're not really any further ahead. <laughs> so, you know, but I love it. And and he's got a fantastic, fantastic amount of research going on. I could not get my my face out of this book. And I really didn't know what to expect at first. I thought, okay, you know, like because I, I just have read so much stuff on it and researched it, you know, pretty extensively myself. And I have to say, I don't think I've read a book that has been so well researched. And you throw in some of the metaphysical stuff as a big Edgar Casey fan, you know, I, I, I just, really, really would have loved to have met this man in person. Just as the, the information that he could channel was phenomenal. Um, but I do also know, being in this field for 20 plus years, that sometimes your answers do come from otherworldly sources. And it's happened to me a multitude of times on, on different levels. So this book has something for everyone, but it was really refreshing to read something um, written and researched by someone who really seems to get it. <laughs> so with that being said, it's going to be a great show. Tune in. And uh, remember, guys, we are, you know, seven chat rooms, super highway coming down one lane. We'll try to, you know, 
get to you, but we have to we have to keep up with the guests. That's the the big important thing here. So patience. Anyway, if I flash your comments across, it's just for the the viewers to see. And um, we have loads and loads of audio listeners. I mean, there's millions of you guys out there. So um, if you want to jump into chat, you come on in and and view and. Uh, Get your comments in there as well. So without further ado, our special guest tonight, Michael. Hello. Hey, how are you, Michelle? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Good. I'm going to put up the book here. Bam. There it is, guys. This is what I've been like going on mm. about. <laughs> so there it is. Kudos. I have to say kudos. What a book. What a book. Thank you. And thank you for the, uh, the kind intro. That's, that's so nice. You know, um, when you start writing a book like this, you know, um, you never know really where it's going to take you. And you, of course, never know how it's going to be received. Um, what your colleagues in uh, the history world will think of you, but I Ooh. did it nevertheless. <laughs> and yeah, and to my great surprise, you know, it's been um, really well received, you know, and I was so skeptical uh, since I self-published it and, you know, designed the cover myself and edited it myself, um, you know, if it would be taken seriously. Um, but to my great surprise, yeah, it actually went to number one bestseller in prehistory in um, this summer, last summer. So I was really surprised. Wow. And um <clears throat> You know, I, I can't really take, you know, full credit for it. I think in many ways, this book was kind of using me uh, to write it in a weird way. Um, and I really, I really feel that way. And right. so I think, um, you know, what I was trying to do was look at the, you know, purely historical data, archaeological data, oceanographic, geological, and... <laughs> At the same time, give a voice to the more clairvoyant and esoteric information and see really where the two overlap um, mm. and explain to people who might not be familiar or, you know, comfortable with such data that, you know, not only does uh, our government and other governments uh, use and have been using remote viewing to great success under wraps um, for mm. decades, but um, that it's a real process. It's not something that's even really necessarily mystical. It's just a kind of attunement with a super conscious field that certain people are more able to do than others. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as you mentioned, Edgar Casey, I picked him because he was one of the most well-documented and studied mm -hmm. Um, clairvoyance. He wasn't just a person on um, Reddit who said, hey, I had a past life in Atlantis. Yeah. He actually <laughs> right. you know, gave 15,000 trance readings and was studied by professionals, medical professionals from Harvard, Stanford, right. um, Princeton, who used him to actually heal people. Right. And so when he started talking about Atlantis kind of halfway through his career, um, it really caught my attention. And then when I actually 
juxtapose what he was saying in the 1930s, almost 100 years ago, mm. against what modern archaeology has now been discovering, which he could not have known. It was quite astounding how right. much of what he said about this time period actually lined up. So, I, I agree with you. I mean, he wrote a book himself on on Atlantis, didn't he? Like he, he, it was quite an interest for him. And he just seemed to have, have channeled with people. Um, Doug, mm. or should I say he did readings with people and it started to surface. And I think that started piquing his interest a little bit as well. I love that you blended it in there because it, it does, you know, give that extra credence to the field, um, mm. so to speak, as well. And gets you maybe a few of those answers that maybe you wouldn't have gotten without it. Exactly. And that's exactly what um, I was trying to do, Michelle, was I was thinking, okay, look, if Plato and, you know, certain pre-Platonic sources or, you know, post-Platonic sources say kind of paint a kind of, uh, you know, like at the eye exam, you know, it's like, (laughs) is this clear? Is this blurry? It's like, well, you can see it, but uh, we don't really know. Right. So to get that... (laughs) 2020 vision um, of such a remote time period, you're talking 12,000 years to the destruction and then whatever preceded that, Right. you actually have to go into the clairvoyant evidence because yes. as detailed as Plato's account, which was written in 360 BC in his two dialogues was, you know, it talks about some of the plants and the circular city and the empire and how warfare was waged and the kings and this and that. But it doesn't exactly give you a precise image of like, well, what was daily life like at certain times in this civilization? And it's really astounding the level of detail that Edgar Cayce gave um, about arcane power sources, Mm -hmm. um, about the science of Atlantis, the spirituality of Atlantis, how they viewed cosmology how they Mm -hmm. viewed the role of the sun Mm -hmm. as the kind of creative intelligent generative source of life um Mm -hmm. how that later carried on into egyptian beliefs of the sun because casey himself was one of the first to believe it or not link giza to atlantis as a vestige of the civilization um kind of reboot after the cataclysm and of course, that work has been adapted by a lot of people, Graham Hancock and other Robert Bouval, Robert Schock. Mm-hmm. But Casey has almost a, I mean, a movie script subplot in those 500 readings of what the Egyptian kind mm-hmm. of Atlantis uh, part two was mm-hmm. and the struggles that that culture went with and how the Great Pyramid in Casey's estimation was actually built in mm-hmm. the year 10,390, not in dynastic Egypt as a tomb for Khufu and all this nonsense that we No, I agree with you. I've back been Yeah, I've mm-hmm. been to the pyramids and they everything about them is if you're intuitive, just screams much older. You're mm. just much older. You can just see, you know, it's, it's it's an experience and a half, but it's just not what it what it claims to be, unfortunately. Which I think is it's it's wonderful when you think about how far back it goes. The thing that intrigued me here is you make reference to the fact that Atlantis could have been like a, a million year old, you know, culture. Well, I put you know, 
I just say what I can uh, safely say with evidence. You know, nothing in this book is really, you know, my opinion. My opinion only comes in if, you know, it's with what sources to include and which sources to focus on. Right. Um, and regarding the beginnings of Atlantis, you know, that's a kind of really important thing. And I think I'll kind of try to break it down. It's I always Please try to do, right? I always try to break it down and I'll say, oh, I'll keep it short. And then it's like an hour and 45 minutes later. Um, <laughs> no, the stage but, you is know, yours. It's come to my attention, especially lately. Um, and again, I mean, no disrespect for people that, you know, are, are looking like for this kind of thing. But right. This obsession with, you know, um, oh, we found a circular city in Mauritania. We found the Rishat structure and necessarily we found Atlantis. And I say, okay, well, let's step back. Let's calm down. Yeah. Let's read what Plato said. And of course, you'll find in his dialogues that, yes, there was a circular capital city in one of multiple principal islands which were where the current azores are today not mauritania which themselves had colonial dominion over mm -hmm. the entire mediterranean starting from gibraltar to egypt that's mm -hmm. what plato said and from which you could reach the whole of the other continent beyond the true sea so north america north america so let's just start with that okay. that's odd that a Greek philosopher in 360 BC recounting a story that his distant relative 200 years earlier was told by Egyptians in the temple of Sais, who in 560 BC were aware of North America, apparently. <laughs> um, the other thing that's quite interesting is the date he gives. And so when Solon, who was a real person vetted mm -hmm. by historical sources. He was an Athenian law reformer. Mm -hmm. He went to Egypt and he said, look, we don't have records that go back as far as the Egyptians. And they said, of course you don't. You're silly Greeks. We write everything down on stone. You just, you know, write them down on papyrus. So of course you're here. Mm -hmm. What would you like to know? And he said, I'd like to know the history of my culture. And so they said, well, there was a time when your culture defended all of the Mediterranean against this marauding group of Atlanteans who entered the Straits of Gibraltar and, you know, put all of the Mediterranean at extremity until Athena and her people defeated them in a kind of pre-Doric, you know, Greek society. And Solon says, okay, when was that? He says 9,000 years before this time. So you can put roughly 9,600 BC for that encounter. Right. And he said, but after that battle in the Mediterranean, the island of Atlantis was subsumed under a great, you know, was swallowed up by the sea and tremendous earthquakes racked the earth and all was lost. Now, that's an interesting date if this is uh, what most people call a, you know, fable which, by the way, Plato begins the dialogue by disclaiming, Socrates, this is a strange story, but every word of it is true. It's vouched for by Solon, the wisest of the seven sages. So he tells you it's not a myth. It's not mm -hmm. a fable. It's a factual account. 
But if you look at that date, 9,600 BC, well, what is that? That's within plus or minus 100 years of the official mainstream end of the Ice Age by cataclysm. Mm. So how did the ancient Egyptians, if this is a fictional story, know when the Holocene era began without ice core samples and bathythermic scans and satellite <laughs> radar? Yeah, yes, yes. And then yeah. they attributed it to what Solon was told. He said, well, what happened? And they said, well, you know, you Greeks have this myth of Phaeton, who is a naughty child who's driving his father's chariot across the sun, across the sky, <clears throat> and he loses control, and he burns everything up upon the earth. And he says, you've mythologized that, but it really signifies the actual declination of heavenly bodies that occasionally fall to earth and burn everything up upon it. Mm -hmm. So they identified a catastrophic cataclysmic comet or comet fragment, many mm -hmm. people believe, from the toroid asteroid belt stream of comet fragments hitting the earth at 9600 roughly BC. And that's exactly what modern science has come to the conclusion that something happened in 9,600 plus or minus 100 year BC, which ended the Younger Dryas period. Right. And that's exactly what an uneducated sixth grade education psychic from Hopkinsville, Kentucky said in his own readings, having no knowledge outside of his trance of any of this. Right. That's also the exact right. time that the Indian Vedas mention a cataclysmic impact on Earth. Right. You know, with this story of, I think it's uh, Vrinka, you know, right. as the name for the comet. And it's like, <laughs> if all of this is fake, then the data wouldn't line up. So right off the bat, when people say, well, there's, it couldn't happen. Well, the actual historical record, the psychic record, and the archaeological, geological, climatological record actually supports that exact date. Plus or minus 100 years for the destruction of whatever existed. Right. And so that's the starting point, you know, just right. to get that. Just to start. I love it. <laughs> I love it. We're just, yeah. just to start. It's it's exciting. Please continue. Just to get that out of the way. <laughs> right. um, and in Casey's estimation, you know, it's quite interesting because in mainstream science, you have this idea that you know that last period the younger dryas which was roughly i believe 12 to 1300 years of an extreme cooling period when the ice age had actually been in a warming trend and then it mm. suddenly plunged into a freezing period and what's interesting is that that's almost exactly in the 1200 uh plus or minus you know 100 year window in the Vedic Yuga system for mm. a destruction by water by celestial bodies called cataclysmos. Right. And again, it's like that's almost a like the yugic cycle actually is the duration of the younger dryas period, the yuga gap between the two yugas, you know, right. actually transitioning from one yuga to another yuga. That yeah. gap is, and many people believe that multiple comet fragments you know, came in that as the earth was passing through the toroid asteroid belt, multiple fragments were coming in. Maybe one came in at, you know, 10,000, one came in at 9,800, another one. And then the big one finished everything off. It appears 
at 9600 BC. And that actually makes sense because in Edgar Cayce's estimation, you know, he gives very precise dates for the first two destructions of Atlantis. Mm. One being 50,722 BC. Wow. When it was a continent that basically stretched where the exact location of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge is today, which is still the biggest mountain range in the world. Wow. It's underwater. But 22 or 50,000 years ago would have been about 700 feet lower in sea level. Right. So that would have been above ground. Right. Plus the continental shelf of the United States would have been above ground out to about 20 kilometers. Right. He says that as well. He says the shelf of the North American Eastern Seaboard were the lowlands of Atlantis, which at that point was a continental landmass. And so the first destruction, which I'll leave that cliffhanger, that's a very interesting technological, ecological, but technologically caused mishap right. to multiple Atlantean factions trying to affect the Earth's climate. And he says the second one, which at that point started at 28,000 BC, when Atlantis had broken into five huge subcontinental islands, wow. also was human caused by a misapplication of this tremendously powerful technology called the Firestone, which was this six-sided crystal that could harness kind of celestial energy and store it in the ground. Mm -hmm. and because of a mistuning by an engineer who actually was a person who came for a past life reading. And he said, who was I in a past life, Mr. Casey? And he said, you really want to know? You were the guy that uptuned <laughs> the Firestone crystal and overloaded the substations on the main primary island, and you destroyed Atlantis the second time. And he said, when was that? 28,000 BC. Wow. Final destruction. By that point, Atlantis had been reduced to three small islands, but still large, still about the size of England. Right. Off what I would consider where the Azores Basin is today, what was mm -hmm. called Dolphin Ridge. Yes. And that doesn't have an actual you know human caused end it has a natural end which is this asteroid fragment debacle that mm -hmm. overtook the earth um right. and it makes perfect sense because in plato's account he's getting the story of the final destruction right he doesn't mention the first two and so it was so important to me these clairvoyant sources because it's such a common critique that, well, where the hell are you getting this, like crystals and lasers and flying machines and all of this stuff? That's mm -hmm. not in the dialogues of Plato, and it's not. Right. right. But in a second channel source that I found, which is even more bizarre and could not have been influenced really by anything, it's the first channeled source in the world, to my knowledge, to mention Atlantis. From 1881 which is A Dweller on Two Planets by Frederick Oliver, who is a 17-year-old kid, uneducated, living in the California frontier near Mount Shasta, <laughs> who starts hearing voices in his head through Claire audience. Yes, I understand. You can start laughing, as I did when I first started reading this book. Mm -hmm. And then proceeds to write a 400-page, basically Shakespearean drama <laughs> at the level beyond any graduate student I've ever advised right. <laughs> on the history of Atlantis. 
starting from 11,116 BC, or excuse me, 60 BC. Again, wow. a very interesting date for a kid of 17 years old right. writing in 1881 when, right. you know, 50 years earlier, uh, electricity had been, you know, introduced to the continent. Right. Uh, and in his description, he actually explains that transition. He right. said when Atlantis had reached about 11,000 BC, it was at its apex of technology. Mm -hmm. It had cigar-shaped aluminum flying craft that were transmedium that didn't have flight surfaces, similar to many UFO reports. Yes. It had monorail transit across the whole principal island, which he called Poside at that time. Nice. He said there were three islands. One of them was called Poside. And that's very interesting because in Plato's account of Atlantis, what's in the center of the capital city? It's a statue of Poseidon. That's right. Aries surrounding it. Right. So right. To my argument that Plato was actually talking about the island of Poseidon, the final iteration of the Atlantean culture, much like we have the British Empire in 1775. Mm -hmm. right. And it's like you've got an outpost in Southeast Asia, you've got mm -hmm. India, you've got West Africa, you've got the Bahamas, you've got the Mosquito Coast, you've got North American colonies, you've got London. Yes. And it's like, if we were looking for the British Empire and you just found... It's everywhere. Know, New York, it's like, yeah. well, is that the British Empire? No. Right. Neither is London. Right. The island of England is the nucleus of a transatlantic empire. And that's, that's exactly right. what Plato said. You know, so when people look for this, I need to find the circular city. It's like, well, maybe you don't need to find the circular city. Maybe you just need to find commonalities on both shores of the Atlantic. And if you're lucky, that would be awesome, of course, to, you know, look below the Azores and find evidence of Poside. It's but, there. It's there. Yeah, I, I think people just need to open their minds to the fact that it's not what we've been conditioned to believe. No, it's not necessarily off the island of Santorini, to which I've been. I've checked it out. <laughs> you know, like, like, uh, you know, I, I love that argument, me well. oh, I, I, I Actually, oh. one of the first critics of the book, yes. it yeah. was hilarious because it's the only negative attack I've gotten of hundreds of positive reviews and everything. And it was a man who had written a book basically on that argument that Atlantis is in the Mediterranean. And it's so almost comically silly to suggest that because no one you can read every translation ancient greek into english read five different translations but you know i just use the standard one by classics professor benjamin jowett who definitely knew what he was doing when he translated right. words and <laughs> there's no way to equate the straits of gibraltar or the pillars of hercules or the mm -hmm. pillars of heracles with the straits between Sicily and Libya or the island of Crete and the mainland. It's like Plato distinctly says they entered from the pillars of Hercules, which is a inland sea as yes. opposed to the outer sea, yes. which the island resided in. And it's like, you just don't like that because then you have to actually think for yourself and go, oh, actually, perhaps everything I've thought about ancient history starting in Sumeria in the Fertile Crescent is actually just a reboot 
of a much older civilization. And I, agree. I don't like that. So I'm going to take the, you know, super volcano that went off in Crete, which has absolutely nothing to do with Atlantis. Um, and say, well, that's just what Plato meant. And it's like, okay, well, where did he get 9600 BC? Why was an Egyptian telling him that story? Where mm -hmm. the hell did the pyramids come from? Why are they aligned to 10,000? There's no four? pyramids on Santorini. I'm just saying. No, pyramids on <laughs> yes, no. there's the ancient right. the ancient city there was was very interesting. I went down into the volcano. I thought that was interesting. Uh, wow. Just trying to get a feel, you know, for for what people we're talking about and i'm saying this looks so small i just it just didn't make any sense but as far as coming up along you know the coast there was a continent there at one time that's completely underwater mm -hmm. much like right. you know moon and ancient lemuria um so i you know i try to put that in the back of my mind so, okay well there's a continent it's gone maybe mm -hmm. you know then we can get into the binami wall you know which is on the other side <laughs> of the sure. atlantic i've been to bimini yeah grew up in south florida there you go, right? And and you know they they were starting to be a bit compelling when with the eye of the Sahara. They were really at least getting warmer. Mm. <laughs> you just have to go a little bit further. Yeah. Well, you and know? again, I always say I I talk about the eye of the Sahara in in my book, and I say, look, you know, it doesn't like uh, I don't have any like a uh, personal stake in it has to right. be <laughs> right i just look at the eye of the sahara and you know i'm not the only one that thinks this it's like they've identified eyes of sahara on other planets you yes. know which again you could say well maybe you know eventually yeah. there was a civilization on mars and you know that's actually not i mean the cia did a remote viewing on mars 1 million bc and they discovered that that actually was probably true <laughs> but i think it's kind of not ex really where Plato was saying it was. And to my knowledge, you know, even though that was a fertile region 10,000 years ago mm -hmm. with an advanced vast river system, actually, mm -hmm. that they discovered in the 80s that Edgar Cayce said existed in 1932 before anybody knew. Right. Um, it doesn't, to me, fit the bill for the principal city of a island which plato clearly described in its size would have been you know a certain size right. but it does bear a striking resemblance to the dimensions of the canals and the walls and the inlet that comes out of it i, I understand that That's but it could also yeah. be a repeat like there are more than one city that looked like new york you absolutely know? <laughs> you can find london it doesn't mean you found paris it's like Okay, if that was a city that worked, I'm sure they had multiple circular cities. I'm sure that was a mm -hmm. just like there are multiple pyramids in China and Mexico and yes, you know, Egypt that look similar doesn't yes. mean they're from the exact same culture. Exactly. Um, but I think the bigger problem with I have with the the circular city is when people think because they don't read the damn dialogue that the whole culture just existed in this circular city and then there was like a foot of beach and that was it and when we find that we'll find atlantis and it's like no but where's a pyramid <laughs> yeah. you know that, it's like, that's like no it was a yeah. very large yes. island mm -hmm. called poside which was one of multiple in an mm -hmm. archipelago probably where the azores basin is today Yes. It had colonies all through the Mediterranean. So naturally, you're going to find, and actually Edgar Casey said, one of the places you can find evidence of Atlantis is in Morocco, 
which in the time he was saying that actually was, I think, lower in its boundaries, which right. could have been interpreted as northern Mauritania, where the eye of the Tsar is. So I actually I have a lot of you know respect for people, but it doesn't mean that that's where the principal island was. Um, and I, mean, I think, it, again, it's, it's silly to just look for the city when you're looking for evidence of a global, basically, culture. Right. But I love that that they're actually investigating it now in the Azores. Like yeah. it's, it's, they, they're really feeling like they're on to something. But how much of our ancient culture lays beneath the waves? And Atlantis, oh. I like that you touched on that. I like that you put it out there. It's like, no, this was... Like you say, you know, there was a kingdom, but but you had places everywhere. There's just too many similarities. Literally, right. I mean, South America is like, come on, like that. There's well, so much there, so much. No, it's incredible. And actually, I always tell people, think of it in reverse. Like, okay, does it make more sense that there was a mid-Atlantic nucleus empire or not? when you find language similarities in Yucatan, Mexico, right. with the Pyrenees Mountains on the border of Spain and France. Right. <laughs> and then when a psychic man who has no education or knowledge of this in waking life says, oh, by the way, when they knew the civilization was going to be destroyed because of astrological signs and you know their own divination process, they went to the Pyrenees and the Yucatan Peninsula. And it's like, he didn't say Greenland and Germany. Right. And so no, when right. I contacted like the Center for Basque Studies, where the Basque language, yes. which is not an Indo-European language, no, that's right. Just pops up out of nowhere. They even say on their website, some people even think the Basques are the descendants of Atlantis. And it's like, yeah, some people do. Because it doesn't make any goddamn sense, excuse my language, <laughs> if that didn't exist. And you take a person from Yucatan who speaks Yucatec and you take them to, you know, the north of Spain on the French border and they can understand on a base level some of each other's, you know, words. Mm -hmm. And it makes no sense. And at the same time, the names Edgar Casey gave for people in their past life iterations in Atlantis mm -hmm. are unbelievably similar to right. Basque and Yucatec names. Right. And you couldn't just make this up. No. There's no I way mean, he some of the names that. are so yeah. bizarre. It's like, you know, Michelle, you were this in Roman times. Your name was Lucretia. You right. know, you were an attendant of Julius Caesar. And then in the third destruction of Atlantis, your name was Itor. A-I-T-O-R. And his stenographer sitting there like, how do you spell that? In her notes. Like, how do you? A-I-T-O-R. So I took every name that Casey gave for the past life readings. It took me months. Right. I went through all the archives and I itemized them alphabetically. Right. Like Itor, Onxor, Ilax, Ishtar, Ilman, Minar, Mintor. And then I took a list of common Basque names. And it's mm -hmm. like, they're almost exact, you know? And I don't think Edgar Casey had a Basque dictionary next to him when he was given these lessons. So, you know, is that, you know, all this to do about this mysterious arch negative blood, which the Basque region, of course, and the Basque people are probably the highest concentration in the yeah. world. Do you think maybe that that's 
that was were Atlantean. Well, it's strange, and there appears to be some kind of weird connection with Rh negative blood and you know ancient Cro-Magnon populations. Like even in the you know uh, Tuareg culture or mm -hmm. the uh, North Africans, you know Berber people who you know are pretty racially diverse, but they also have a very strange proportion. And again, that's where Casey said there was a large Atlantean colony. Yes. And, you know, what else is interesting is that there used to be a road that actually is still like traces of it still exist that went basically all the way across North Africa and ends in Abydos, Egypt. And many people think that you know these survivors didn't just take boats like a lot of them just got to north africa and walked on this pilgrimage until they got to egypt to reboot the society which twelve thousand years ago was a fertile grassland it was not a desert correct and what's interesting is that around one part of algeria i think in tassili near the caves there's strange rock art that comes from exactly that time period of the cataclysm and it's like who made that Right. You know, it's just right. it actually and Herodotus actually walked that road. He wanted to see for himself. He went to Egypt and he said, you know, the right. Egyptians said that right. at one point in their ancient history, they migrated from some far place in the West in the before time on this mm -hmm. road. I'm going to go see if this is real. And he walked the road and he's like, it is real. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of it's all, all there if you food. if you know what you're looking for. Right. That's it's, right hidden in plain and if sight. You know, and if you know what to use and what if what you know what to screen against, you know, I was mm -hmm. very averse to using too many modern channelers because I had anticipated, I'm always my harshest critic, I had anticipated people saying, well, this person could have just watched, you know, movies or read mm -hmm. other Edgar Casey books. And it's true. There's no sure. way to know. Right. So I wanted to see, okay, what was the first one or two, you know, instances where Atlantis was pushed to that date, mixed with high technology, and the people saying that could have had no knowledge, and they were vetted by friends, doctors, scientists that studied them and had proven other things unrelated to Atlantis, like, I don't know. 8,000 medical diagnoses that had 98% accuracy in Edgar Casey's case that saved people's lives. Uh, that's a credible source. Right. You know, that is pretty credible. It's pretty uh, credible. I think Edgar Casey more than, than, than proved himself, even in, you know, to, to academics of his, of his time, I think anything that he, he said could have been taken with great credibility and the fact that you were able to cross-reference so many different things to me is even more credibility and validation mm. you know so it's hard yeah, it because was... modern day academia sort of says no that's ridiculous but you can't when you can cross-reference it to something that's already there and approved by them like that they've already explored then how do you how do you discount that it's true um and I always tell people, you know, that I was recently reading um, an excellent book on the yuga cycles that just came out by um, uh, Dev Mishra, incredible researcher. And I cited him in my book, but he had published this after my book came out. And I was just reading it last night. And, you know, he reminds people all the time that until Charles Darwin 
it was never assumed that history progressed linearly. That's not how people viewed the Renaissance view of history. Mm -hmm. It was only in the 19th century, really, when people started to believe because of their powers of colonization and the you know extreme disparity mm -hmm. in technology between, say, mm -hmm. Europeans and indigenous people, right. that we must necessarily be at the apex. And he was aware of ancient historical cyclical trends of history mm -hmm. where civilizations rise, fall, rise, fall. And Mishra puts a very interesting quote where he says, I'm aware of that, but that's not a very cheerful way to look at history. And in light of our tremendous advances as Europeans, we should discount it. And with that simple phrase, he set the tone for the next, you know, 200 years of professional quote unquote history that discounts the possibility that we are not at the teleological edge and apex of a slow progression from nothing to mm -hmm. iPhone 10, and that mm -hmm. it's impossible that we could have been here before and way beyond and just been utterly destroyed. So, you know, what What did or would he make out of out-of-place artifacts? And, you know, I mean, there are mines that are 300 million plus years old that were fully functioning in, in, in different, you know, remote countries of the world <laughs> like there there well, are I'm thinking of i'm thinking of you know the the dating of i think it's fifty six thousand bc there's a mine of hematite in swaziland right and it's like well what what are hunter gatherers doing with an industrial mining operation <laughs> um you know yeah the other thing is, <laughs> what about that what about the, you know, tentative dating of the Gunung Padang Pyramid in, you know, South Pacific, which is dated yes. roughly to 27,000 BC? Mm -hmm. uh, were hunter-gatherers building that at the top of a mountain? Like, exactly. What about exactly. Gobekli Tepe, <laughs> which is officially, unequivocally dated to the, you know, same period as the end of Atlantis, but we still haven't updated the textbooks. They, they just, just found another one that was even older, not far from there. So, right. So they're saying this is older than Gobekli. It's just like, you know, probably by a thousand years, nothing major. But the fact remains is that this was happening. Right. You can't discount that. Like you can't. Or an entire underground city in Cappadocia <laughs> near Gobekli Tepe that like yeah. we couldn't build today. No. It goes down like 50 <laughs> stories tunneled into the mountain. It's like, who did that and why? Yes. Maybe yeah. they had anticipated a coming cosmic catastrophe. I mean, there's no logical reason. It doesn't make sense from a military perspective. You're not safer in an underground city. No. But you need to escape the surface destruction. It does make sense. Um, well, so, water, especially ice. Right. Right. And it's like, you know, when you start piecing together, um, you know, because the clairvoyant evidence was probably a third of the book, but really the majority of the book is pretty straight mm -hmm. in terms of oceanographic charts, yes, bathothermic scans that show, hey, look, yes, this, you know, and, and to me, really, one of the most like shocking. I even had to call a friend because I'm like, like, am I going crazy here? Right. Was like seven years ago, before the book was even like a thing, I was just doing research mm -hmm. and i was reading a dweller on two planets that channeled text from 1881 
Right. And the kid just casually includes a sketch. And he says, this is what Poside looked like at its peak. He draws a very detailed triangular shaped island. Mm-hmm. And he says, this is where the capital was. This is where the circular city was. This is where our manufacturing was. This is, and he puts names and this is where the rivers were. He draws very precise, jagged wow. outline of the coast. Right. And I'm like, okay, let's just see. I, mean, I didn't even believe in channeling at this time seven years ago. I was just a right. history professor at the university. Yeah, I was an academic guy, right? Yeah. I said, let me just see if this is, if I can find this puzzle piece in the Atlantic Ocean. Right. So I looked off the coast of Portugal and I looked at a map, a satellite image of what's the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean look like with no water. Mm-hmm. That drawing fits exactly <laughs> over the landmass under the Azores. And wow. what's shocking is I spent about six months looking through every ancient or not ancient but 19th century map database right. was there a picture anywhere even if he had to travel to the vatican you know right. from oregon to find yeah. this map which you know he didn't do right right could he have seen that shape and just copied it in this fictional quote unquote book that's not fictional um no because the mid-atlantic ridge was only discovered five years before he sketched that and right. their image that he'd have to go to a you know oceanographic institute in washington dc to see it it didn't just appear in the you know mount shasta public library in the wild west exactly okay but in all uh, fairness mount shasta is like portal haven <laughs> well and it's interesting that he wrote that book in the shadow of Mount Shasta. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> it's very interesting that his source says, I'm from there. See? <laughs> yeah. You know, he lived in Eureka with a Y, E-R-E-K-A, Eureka, right. Washington. But he yeah. said, I lived in the shadow of Mount Shasta. Right. Um, but it's weird because their map of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge just has soundings. Like, this is the depth here, this is the depth there. It's shallower here than not. But when you look at a bathythermic satellite scan from 2020, mm-hmm. it's exactly to the millimeter what wow. this kid channeled and drew in 1880. Which is crazy. Which is crazy. And that's Poside. And where is it? Exactly where Plato said it was. In his eyes. And they found a pyramid in 400 feet of water. Yes. Off the coast of Tercera in the Azores. And yes. I actually contacted that man yes. through a Portuguese translator. Right. And he told my translator, I swear to God, I am a professional fisherman. Here's a picture of my depth finder in real time that I took when I was over that pyramid, which was aligned exactly to true north. And you can look on the depth finder. And I said, look, I used to work on a fishing boat. I used to fix the depth finder on the fishing boat. Right, I'm familiar right. with the technology. And right. I couldn't believe it. And I included that in the book. You know, yes. he was on national television in He Portugal. was. It was a huge discovery. Yeah. That and then it just, you know, people claim they couldn't find it again. But he gave me the coordinates. And he said, look, if you ever want, he's quite old now and he's not in good yes. health but he said look if you ever come out here i'll take you out there yes and you but see, see you're allowed to self. now like the navy i think it was just sort of ixnate right. everything just to keep people 
from going there and diving there or, or, right. or doing anything. And it's the Navy that started investigating it, I believe. Yes. I mean, come on, you know, right? Of course. What are we going to find? They said conclusively it was a malfunction of his depth finder. Oh, was it? Oh, sure. Yeah. So the depth finder <laughs> yeah, malfunctioned, sure. but it produced a perfect cardinally aligned pyramid in the same shape as the Great Pyramid at Giza. Yeah, that's an interesting malfunction. I've never had a depth finder malfunction that way. Wow. Um, personally, wow. so. Because of course they, they know you know they found. found something. You know they found something in there that they don't want anyone near there's a, this technology it's all there maybe underwater but it's it's all there if you know what you're looking for yeah and it's you know it's interesting too because part of the book is not just trying to show people the actual evidence but it's to show how how did actual academics view this subject until quite recently and what was really interesting to me uh was really until like the last i mean if you think okay this story has been around in the west at mm -hmm. least since 2360 years ago when plato right. wrote about it right right so in those 2360 years or 84 years now what was the majority of consensus opinion on it and you find that really until like 1995, when Graham Hancock started to get popular, almost everyone treated this seriously. And that gave me a tremendous amount of relief that, oh, I don't know, Francis Bacon, like the founder of the scientific method, uh, he was a believer. Uh, Mon Michel de Montaigne, the yeah. inventor of the literary essay and a... Then the first person to say that Native Americans in the West Indies had the same souls as the Europeans, like not a small figure. He thought it was real. Yeah. You know, yes. the official yes. chronicler of the conquest of the Americas, you know, mm -hmm. a man named De Gomera. Mm -hmm. He was the first to notice, hey, you know, it's interesting. Some of these natives have words like atl. And that word appears in North Africa. And it means water. And he's like, that's interesting because a lot of these Aztecs claim they come from Aztlan as we, you know, murder them and burn their churches and sure. everything. But yeah. it's interesting that they say they're from Aztlan. Maybe that's Atlantis that the great philosopher talked about because they were right. all reading Plato. Right. And so it's just it's astoundingly arrogant and hilarious to me when some goofball like Michael Shermer comes along, you know, who has never even set foot seriously into the past but mm -hmm. sits on this kind of you know pedestal and you know graham hancock is a fraud and go to my website and i'll debunk everything for you know a price it's easy to debunk to debunk something if you don't believe it it's easy you, to debunk you, something if you don't know anything about it that well exactly <laughs> and, and you, you clearly you don't want to know because all you want to do is disprove it i think i right. think if you're going to do any sort of research you have to have some kind of an open mind because it, it makes you look foolish. It's just like you're saying, you know, as you're talking about him sitting there going, it's absolutely foolish. Every, you know, you, people want to know. This is like, this has been one of them, you know, like our society, our, our, you know, populace, as far as a civilization goes, it's been, it's been a big mystery. Where is it? How many shows have you seen on this? How many books have been written? How many conversations have happened? Kids shows, kids books. I mean, on every possible level. 
Atlantis has always been on the tip of many people's tongues yeah. with theorizing where it actually is. You're right. And I think probably part of the reason I wrote this was because I was so tired of listening to people tell me what to think. And I said, you know, I'm going to write a book that anybody from, you know, the expert to the absolute beginner can pick up from page one to page 396 and actually enjoy a curated story by a professional historian of intellectual history. That's what I study. I study how ideas evolve throughout Western history. Right. And nobody had really done that with this. And that was a very important part because it's not enough to just say, look at this ice core sample. Look at this. You've got to see who has treated this subject seriously. And then why has it become this kind of silly thing in recent times for mm -hmm. some people? But, right. you know, you realize that the majority of people actually, when they know you're not, you know, going to judge them, they go, oh, you know, actually, I've always wondered about that. And then there'll be a third person in the bar. What are you talking about? Atlantis? Oh, no, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about, you know. Because people safe. look at it as, as, as the, this is just some some myth. People look at things like this. I, I don't understand, you know, how and and. And there's no no disrespect. I'm I'm just bending bending some some minds here a little bit. But people don't see the creator. They don't see mm. source. They don't see God. You know what whatever right. you call what your belief. You don't see it, but you believe it. So why you know if they don't see something like this mythical place? Is it because it's been made? We've been conditioned to think this is a myth that never existed. Um, you know, it's like journey to the center of the earth. You know, is there anything there in earth? Don't be silly. Mm. <laughs> Damn it. I want to know that there's hobbits there. We've never, we've never <laughs> gone. Know, like, we've never gone deep enough. So it's ex like, exactly. that's more undiscovered than the oceans. Exactly. So, you know, so, let's not laugh at that either. I mean, exactly. there's actually from Dolores Cannon's channelings, there's yes. an entire civilization under the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, yes. Now, can I yes. prove that? I don't know. You know, but Hitler know. believed it in it. The Nazis, the, you know, the Nazis were looking for Agartha, and nice. I wouldn't exactly call them uh, silly people. No, they but, were looking for everything. Right. Um, so, um, you know, it's interesting because um, I think, you know, I always tell people it, what's so frustrating is that so much of the evidence is in plain sight. It's right there. Like, we still cannot... And let me repeat this for anyone listening. There is no record that we, anyone has seen. Perhaps it exists in the Vatican after the Library of Alexandria we was pillaged and destroyed. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, I'm sure it does. <laughs> to the rest of us, no record of how the Great Pyramid was constructed in a culture called Dynastic Egypt, allegedly, that has the most meticulous and extensive record keeping of yes. any civilization on earth. And yet their yes. astounding, impossible structure, they themselves don't have a record of. Well, does that lend more or less credibility to the claim that they inherited it? Right. That it was there a long time before dynastic Egypt appeared, you know, in let's say the fourth millennium BC. Right. That it actually was there for 6,000 years and was built by the Atlanteans in conjunction with other groups, as Casey says. 
leading right. to this mixture of people that created the Egyptian race. Um, right. That actually makes sense. And then right. you go, okay, well, what's the date Edgar Casey gives? 10,390 for its completion, and it took 100 years. You go, okay. Uh, and then you look at Robert Boval, who was looking at an aerial map of Cairo in the museum, and he said, you know, it's interesting that those three pyramids look like the constellation uh, Orion. <laughs> yes. I wonder if they line up with it. So he puts it in a computer in the 80s, and, in, you know, he's like, oh, it doesn't fit. But he goes, well, wait a minute. When does it fit? Oh, 10,450 BC. It's like, right. oh, that's just another crazy, you know, right. coincidence. It's like, right. you're a fool if you look at things that are that exact and you say, that's a coincidence. Because by that logic, well, then let's just throw everything away. Because everything's just a coincidence then, you know? Right. Don't tell me anything about the ancient Greeks. Don't tell me anything about dynastic Egypt. Don't tell me anything about ancient Sumeria because it's all just a coincidence. But suddenly when it's Atlantis, it's, you know, oh, it couldn't right. be, you know. And I never understood that. Why is it difficult to think that civilization started from allegedly hunter-gatherers to Gobekli Tepe, the pyramids, law, writing, religion, language? Sumerian civilization is probably, which I think you actually do mention. like one, like the, I do. One of the oldest, if not the oldest, civilization I mean, it goes back, they dated ancient Sumerian kings back 450,000 years ago. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that because the who's smarter, me and you or the people that invented civilization? So I always think to myself when people say, yeah, well, they, you know, they say that the, you know, extraterrestrials came and, you know, the Apkalu came and the Anunnaki and Anuna and all this and Anki and Ea, but they got the date wrong. It wasn't that long ago. What they really meant was that they landed in New York City in 1965. And, you know, right. it's no big deal. It's not, it's not a, it's like, right, right. It's like when people tell me Plato couldn't have said 9,600 BC because we all know nothing existed then. Right. And it's like, you've already told me just how little you know about well what was going on in 9006 oh right the cataclysm that ended the ice age that he mm. guessed but you want to put it at 960 because that fits dynastic egyptian times and therefore it explains how egypt could have been fighting the atlanteans in crete and all this bs and it's just like we don't do that to anything else mm. you know when the Egyptians in dynastic times say, you know, King Menu lived in this date, we go, textbook, this is the date that they said. And But when they say a little further that we don't like, oh, well, that's just the mythical. You're going against the conditioning. And and right. um, Dolly says, E.T. taught me about other civilizations before Atlantis. I think there were many civilizations before Atlantis, for sure. Uh, I think Atlantis is just the one that, that people gravitate to because it just disappeared. And it's the most analogous to, yeah. I would say, the modern West in many yeah. ways. In fact, Edgar Casey said that, and so yeah. did Frederick Oliver. He said, right. look, many of those that were around in the final destruction are back again, including Adolf Hitler, including Stalin, including many totalitarian leaders in the 20th century hmm. were reincarnations of the final battles of Atlantis for power before the hmm. cataclysm in their version of the Kali Yuga cycle. And so 
many people that came to Casey were like, you know, in the 1930s in this advancing time of, you know, airplanes and, you know, television coming out in the 50s and, and, and radio. That was a bit wiggy in, in that time period, too. For him. That was brave of him to be yeah, so forthcoming because that would have been a little bit a faux pas, you know, family secret. <laughs> Right. Sure, sure, and I mean, you know, he he even predicted many of the events of World War II. In fact, he, including, which to me as a military historian as well, was fascinating. In one reading during World War II, when the Germans were, you know, very close to winning the war against the Soviet Union, somebody asked him, like, "Will we be able to stop the Aryan menace, as they yes. called it?" And he said, "On this day, and you know, this week." the fate of the world depends on this battle. And you look at that date and you go, okay, well, what was going on there? Well, that's the battle of Kursk. That's when the Nazis essentially threw everything they had at the Soviet Union and were catastrophically defeated. And then we're on the run for the next two years until they right. lost. Right. And it's like, nobody knew that. Casey wasn't sitting in with Hitler in the high no, command. That's right. Listening to the battle of Kursk. That was a secret plan that no one knew about in America right. on a couch. Right. That he knew that. Right. So right. again, it's not just limited to past lives. And to answer, you know, what you were saying about um, previous civilizations, yeah. Frederick Oliver talks about that, the kid mm -hmm. from the 19th century. And he says, you know, Atlantis itself was a kind of late stage of much older civilizations like Lemuria and even things that preceded. And Casey alludes to that, like right. pre 300, 400,000 years. And he said, those even, I can't even access, you know what I right. mean? Like they wouldn't even make sense to you. So right. we're going to stick with what you can handle because right. that's where you, that's where you were. You were this person in Atlantis. Right. And again, you know, I wrote the book, not even thinking about the parallels with today. Mm -hmm. But as I was publishing it, I started to look around the world in 2020, 2021, 22, 23. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, hold on a minute. Uh, something's going on out there in Davos. And it reminds me a lot of some of the things that I saw in these final days of Atlantis. You know, this push for a totalizing control death grip on human civilization, this disparity between uh, power and technology levels that are disclosed to the people and then mm -hmm. to the elite, which Casey goes into a whole side story about. No one really knew how their civilization worked except for a small inner circle. Right. It's no different now. scientists, right. Right. And, you know, that ultimately proved to be one of their, you know, kind of downfalls was concentration of power and in Frederick Oliver's account, which is in extraordinary that he said this in 1881, he said at the final phases, like approaching 10,000 BC, mm -hmm. he said the rulership could divest themselves of physicality and become as electricity. Mm -hmm. So it's like, were they uploaded to a cloud? Were they in a transhumanist, weirdo, Ray Kurzweil universe? I don't know. It sounds like it. And he yeah. said, and what happened was everybody forgot how to. And in 1881, Michelle, he described a holographic projection from a smartphone. <clears throat> yes. Kind of like Enoch. Kind of like Enoch. 
Right. And you realize why they, yeah, when Enoch went to the, the yeah. Crystal Palace, then they, you know, conveniently, they only let Where the was the Crystal Palace? And they only let the Ethiopian church have that book. Yeah. They, right. They, I couldn't read that one when I was in Catholic school, unfortunately. No, exactly. When, when Enoch went to the Crystal Palace. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, Maybe it was Atlantis. Well, I mean, it's really <laughs> interesting because even that question comes up of, visitors and you got to think how unbelievably advanced that question was in 1930 when a woman asked edgar casey are we the only species on planet earth this is before a picture of planet earth existed or the first ufos were even reported in public right on besides the airships and like you know, if yeah. you were on a military recovery team in Magenta, Italy, and you saw the first crashed craft that they recovered, yeah, then you knew. But the public was not aware whatsoever until after World War II that right. there could be extraterrestrials. That was not in the public parlance, so to speak. And so this woman asks him that. And she he says, well, it's interesting because before the final destruction, some of the group were warned you know, decades in advance. And they said, warned by who? And he said, well, the people from the outer spheres through the portal told them. And he says, you were one of the keepers of that portal. And she says, portal? And he says, yes, a way of communication with those of the outer worlds or outer spheres and you. Right, see. And then they also asked him, are any other planets in our solar system inhabited? And he said, no. So, so it's not just a... Yeah, it's not just like a like simple thing. Like he said, there are and have been extraterrestrial visitors that yes. visited Atlantis that warned them. They weren't the principal builders of everything, but they influenced them. Mm -hmm. Just like today, like aliens didn't build, you know, the stealth bomber, but perhaps we engineered it based on recovery of materials. That's possible in mm -hmm. the skunk you know nevada test site right and it's i think the same with atlantis they didn't literally just have aliens building the pyramids in atlantis right. but they could have advised or played a role sure communicated sure. certain ideas um, um dollar so says that mars was inhabited so was it um at the time maybe that well, no, was casey was it a current yes. or are they inhabited now right exactly because we see and all I kinds of stuff on mars like, no i believe absolutely mars we're like yeah, what is up with that? I believe absolutely a million years ago, Mars absolutely was inhabited. Um, right. But she was saying, at this time, are at any planets time. in 1932? Right. She said, no. Right. No, they're not. Right. Which was, is accurate. You know, she didn't say, what was Mars like in 2 million BC? He probably right. would have said, well. It was just currently, you know, like, right? You know. I, I just, I, I, I just, I love how, um, you know, Edgar Casey did, did communicate about about extraterrestrials. I mean, you can go back throughout ancient, our ancient past as we investigate in hieroglyphs, petroglyphs, you know, different monuments. We know that extraterrestrials were very much present. I mean, they, they talk about it in the Old Testament. You can see it in old paintings. Like I said, Leonardo da Vinci, you know, disappeared for two weeks, came yes. back even more brilliant than he was. You know, it's like... No, that's really true. That's really interesting, actually. I, I forgot yes. about that. Yes. I forgot about that. There's, there's just there's just so much, you know. Why do you think people are just so fixated on Atlantis? I mean, you went into a lot of detail. I think it would answer a lot of questions. But what do you think the fixation 
is because they clearly, when I look at this, the information you have in there, I'm just like, wait, wait till you get a load of that information. <laughs> and then you'll be able to say, now I know I am fixated. It's just yeah. culturally well, speaking, it's, it's like everybody I, was a part of it. Well, exactly. And quite ironically, rather than being a mythical lost civilization, it was the default state of most of humanity. Right. right. We are in the aberration period where we're beginning like little children, like the Egyptians said, from nothing and are clapping ourselves on the back because I can talk to you through a little crappy <laughs> webcam. I know. Isn't it great? <laughs> but mean, in reality... How primitive. <laughs> yeah, but in reality... <laughs> We used to be living like Star Wars, you know, and we should and, still be living like and Star we Wars. Should be, and we're, you know, we're suppressed. According, right, and you know, I think a time will come. Uh, according to Dev Mishra, um, it's quite interesting because he recognized that there was a mistake in the traditional dating of the end of the Kali Yuga, which is a you know thousand plus you know six thousand year roughly um time period of the nadir of human morality consciousness even mm -hmm. physicality our bodies our brains have shrunk since that time that's been documented so we're dumber than we ever were um so we're a species with amnesia a species with amnesia and a smaller brain and so he realized he did a correction on the yuga chart and he goes do you know michelle when the kali and it would explain everything you see if you go on twitter or definitely everything you see if you go on mainstream news the official end of the kali yuga is around december 21st 2025 and then begins a period called ekpyrosis which is the opposite analog of catastrophos which was the destruction by water this is a 1200 year period of a destruction and burning away of evil through fire well shit. And then the golden so, age. <laughs> so, so yeah i'm ready get ready wow so but it makes perfect sense because i watch world leaders lie and people die and they walk away with a smile and they're innocent and they get paid millions of dollars and nothing happens to them while people go to jail for smoking a joint. If anything could be the more apotheo, you know, the, the apotheosis of just the banality of evil mm -hmm. and just ignorance and uncaring, it would be that kind of stuff. You gotta go and to Canada, I, they'll let you smoke as many We are <laughs> We are one year away from the final end of that stage of just complete bullshit that we've been born into and inherited since biblical pre-biblical times right. so it's like you know it actually to answer your question the reason we can't believe in something so you know evident and scientifically obvious as we used to be way better right and we were destroyed through this natural cycle that happens every 25,000 years in history is because we're too stupid. It's because we are the people that were born into the dumbest, most corrupt period of human history. And even the smartest person alive today is a 
kind of shadow fragment of a person on average 15,000 years ago in, say, the Silver Age of Atlantis, or say, mm. even before that in the Dwapara Yuga in the Golden Age, when people could telepathically communicate with animals and manifest yes. food and all this stuff. Yes. That's yes. why. It's because the the age we're in precludes the ability to be able to think of the Golden Age until we can burn through for 1,200 years through the ekperosis, whatever the hell that's going to be, and maybe reincarnate in the following golden age in the year, say, uh, 3,250, which I look forward to, you know, having a big party on the beach in, you know, the golden age. May not even be on this friends. planet because, you know, you can incarnate yeah, right. anywhere you want to, right? Like, right. right. I want to go hang out here, at Mount though. Shasta and just slip right No, no, no. I don't, I, I don't want to go in. I want to come Sedona. Back. If I had to go through this shit in Kali Yuga, I'm coming back here <laughs> to party in the Golden Age in Miami Beach, Golden Age, Atlantis, risen Golden Age. That's what right. I'm interested in. Right. You know, but Atlantis, I mean, they, they but, did find traces of that in Sedona and the Grand Canyon. Come on. Like, you talk. Well, and you know, that's actually that very interesting. And um, I use that, that temple they found. Um, with actually Indian, a lot of people talk about Egyptian, but if you read that account, which again, I cite the two people who, you know, to their credit, they do have some legitimate critiques of that story because it was written in a kind of um, unscientific journal that reported a lot of sensational things. It was written in a tabloid, the Arizona Gazette, that official story. And right. allegedly the person that was supposed to be the guy who found it was never listed in the Smithsonian journals, but you can't trust the Smithsonian, so no. I don't rule that out. But they took all the giant bones and dumped them all in the yeah. ocean. We, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, feel them like, existed, like, but we destroyed them. It's like, <laughs> right? It's like trusting, you know, the CIA until you read the declassified documents, like, <laughs> just because the Smithsonian doesn't agree right. that JA. Uh, whatever his name was, was a official explorer, then, you know, it doesn't mean, but right. anyway, that story is what's so weird about that story is that, I mean, <laughs> the inside of that structure that the explorer Kincaid claims to have found while he was canoeing down the snake river, then he went into this crazy, you know, cave city with these mm -hmm. tombs, And then he says, I saw the picture, I saw an effigy of the Buddha holding a cactus with like good and evil, but it looked like Hindu. Wow. And I was like, that's interesting. He didn't say Egyptian. He said Hindu. Wow. I spent a year in the Edgar Casey online archives looking for any reference of that area, Sedona, Arizona. And I must have spent like literally a year because, I mean, he had thousands of clients from Arizona or he had like a medical place. He was sending people in Arizona until I finally found something. And it said, you know, you used to live in the cities, in the caves that were built into the cliffs of Arizona. See. And you were a part of a group what called the Hapapulpic people, which is very close to the actual tribal name of the, I think it's like, have a Suchik Indians or something like that. Right. I forget, but it's right. very similar. Hapa Pulpik was what Kay Casey said the original group was. And the lady said, Oh, like, where did we come from? He said, From the Indian lands. 
And he said, not these Indian lands, from the Indian lands far away. And it's like, wow. The other side of the world. Very weird. And, you know, the Hopi themselves have stories of, we come from Tibet. And it's like, what? <laughs> what? It's like, what did you, you say? Yes. You came no, from it, Tibet. That's, that's so, crazy. Again, that's I think the, the bigger picture I, I learned was, regardless, you know, Atlantis was just like the kind of focal point to keep me kind of focused on, let me talk as much about this thing as I can, but let's also see what was going on on the periphery, you know, at these different times. And so mm -hmm. it kind of led me to touch on like, was there an analogous culture in India in ancient history, you know, looking at Indian records and what they, and it appears that yes, there was. And of course in one channeled reading, they were at war with each other at one point, you know, right. this alternative to Atlantis that didn't use technology but had mastered mental faculties. And right. in one case, the Atlanteans tried to attack them with conventional weapons fired from flying machines, and this Indian group could just simply turn them away. Do you think the Atlanteans were, you know, a little bit like what our elite are today? Well, the one faction of the Atlanteans... Um, almost identical analogs to the Nazis. And Casey talked about them before the rise of the Nazis, um, right. which is really interesting. And they were called the Sons of Belial. And that's interesting because Belial, of course, is, you know, a character in the Bible. And, you know, that word Belial means wicked in Hebrew. And the mm. Sons of Belial can sometimes look, you could look at it as the acolytes of Belial or just mm. wicked evil materialistic people there's in different interpretations but <clears throat> bell in chaldean is a derivation of baal baal hamon from phoenician and baal is a you yeah. know bit of a <laughs> evil son of a bitch from the well, yeah, bible a bit of a bugger yes he was yeah casey's in casey's story you know he was around in atlantis and right. in fact sons of belial were these Nazi eugenicist psychopaths mm -hmm. that sexually, you know, created mutant sex slaves and had like Epstein Island on steroids with mutants and it's crazy. It's a crazy part of the it's book. It's hard it's to think when you go that far back in history that that sort of thing even existed. But I, I have to think though, it's like any culture, you know, you have your good people, you have your bad people. I think you have people in control you know, mm -hmm. the technology are going to be the ones that, you know, they, 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 they sort of, it's, it's, it's human nature. I don't think it matters how far back you go. Even when you're looking at people who are no. sacrificing other people who are in charge, you know, like. Right. So. Right. And, you know, they, but, you know, it's interesting because it's not just um, a kind of easy story to piece together because i always tell yes. people think about how much our history has changed since 1776 right yes yeah. and of the let's say six to seven thousand years of recorded history think about how much has changed in the last 250. yes and that's seven thousand years mm -hmm. so if you're talking about a culture that let's just take 
take Edgar Casey's example of it started around 100,000, had a first destruction at 50,000, a second at 28,000, a third at 10,000. Who really knows what the interim millennia were like? They could have been so different from, you know, each other that with minor cataclysms and uprisings and destruction, it's, it's anybody's guess. He just kind of focused on these very specific times near mm. the destructions because his clients apparently had lived in those times and were traumatized by decisions they made. Like one woman joined with the factions of Belial at the end. And he says that she goes, well, what? She was like, you know, it says her name, like Catholic, uh, Catholic, 20 years old. Wow. Cool girl. And then the name is, you know, redacted because it's yes. a real reading from the, you know, a private citizen in 1932. And he, she says, well, who was I? And he takes her back to revolutionary times, then Rome, then, oh, you saw Jesus, but you weren't really close to him, but you lived around there. Oh, and then the thing that really is affecting you now is because at the final destruction, you decided to join with the sons of Belial. You were involved in what he called debaucherous sex parties. Uh oh, <laughs> karma. <laughs> he was hitting with yeah. a dose of karma. Oh boy. <laughs> and then <laughs> right. you decided to yes. start putting people through a sacrificial flame and oh. then spreading their ashes within the circular city's canals and making prisoners of war drink the water mixed with the ashes. Wow. That's harsh. And you thought that was fun. That's got some major karmic juju. <laughs> yeah, so that's why things are not going well. so great today. <laughs> wow. You know, right. But he said, you always have a choice and you can always make it up. And well, the law of one. Experience. I've, right. I've spoken about the, the law of one for like ever. And it's just interesting that to see it yeah. show up in the book. Well, and it's true because, you know, he was one of the first people to ever talk about that. And he said right. that those two factions, the Sons of Belial, Mm. were this kind of like technocratic Nazi mm. WEF Davos weirdos. And then on the other side, you had the children of the law of one who were kind of, they weren't perfect, but they were more like a Jedi council that was really just trying to preserve the culture and not really push it. You know, nice. uh, that's true in the convoluted universe. In fact, I hadn't even read the convoluted universe, Alison Carr, right. when I wrote Dolores. the book. Yeah. And when I read all of them after, I was like, I have to put another edition out because so many of her clients in the 90s and 2000s and 80s from that book had stories that were unbelievably similar to Edgar Casey's stories. And they, to my knowledge, had never I, read I that see before. an update. <laughs> I see an yeah. update coming. Yes. Yeah. But I, I also like that you went back and you spoke about the Gnostics and the Essenes and, and the Archons. Oh, yes. The Archons. Oh, yes. Right. Oh, we have to touch on that because people mm. don't understand. Like I've I've studied Gnosticism and I found I've always found it intriguing that these these people um, had such an understanding of the stars and they knew, you know, that then the Archons are still around, you know, in one shape or another yeah. form or another today. Right. And then because it goes back mm. to, you know, we left. Okay, there we go. Take it away. <laughs> oh, don't, don't tell me you're frozen. <laughs> Somebody doesn't want him talking about archons. 
Try and come back in. Oh, are you there? Okay, you froze completely. Okay. The archons. I was going to say, I just finished saying, somebody does not want Michael talking about the archons. (laughs) Okay. They don't like like it when you talk about them. They don't. So so just go for it. (laughs) This is the outer realm after all. (laughs) Well, you know, it's really interesting because before I was ever interested in Atlantis, actually, um, I think it was my first year as a professor. I was 23 years old and I taught at a Catholic university. And I had just kind of come out of graduate school where I studied really enlightenment critiques of organized religion was my specialty. And so I wasn't very happy to listen to the people at the university tell me about God and this and that. I was actually quite insulted. And so I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to teach the children about Gnostic Christianity in my religion class and see how long before they fire me or I get an email, which I never did. They never caught me. And I really spent a long time on that because it was so interesting to me as a person who, you know, had been raised in the Catholic church, but, you know, not in a dogmatic way. But I had looked at those stories and just thought, oh, you know, this is interesting. And okay, yes. like that Same. It could be, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't really think about it. I didn't think about it. I just... Yeah, <laughs> I like the stories when they blow up yeah. the Temple of Baal and all this. It's pretty right. cool. Yes. You know, but when I read the Gnostic stuff, I started to think, you know, this actually sense of how that's how I felt. Lane, this kind of yes, frozen hidden. Let me try another network here. Archon jamming I right was now. Gonna say. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, it is weird. I mean <laughs> you were fine up there. I don't know. Yeah, it was the, perfectly fine. Gnosticism well, made sense was, to was, me too. I guess. Yeah. The thing was um it just intuitively made sense. And you know, one of the readings that I used to teach the kids that really hit home was this text called the hypostasis of the archons Mm -hmm. and you know you could translate that as the 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 instantiation or the reality of the rulers because that's what archon in greek means is the ruler and who these things were and what their role was you know and it's interesting because the gnostics you know who wrote this and this is probably written in like 200 a.d or something we don't Mm -hmm. really know Mm -hmm. But it was dug up. I think that one's from the Nag Hammadi library. Yes. And what they say is interesting because you could apply it to today. And they say, well, really, this Yahweh character that you all think is God uh, is a what they call an aborted fetus is how they describe him and a demiurge. And that the true God, which is not anthropomorphic, but is a female generative creative source called faith wisdom or pistis sophia which is like a galactic center kind of thing Mm -hmm. uh she's really the one and this bastard came down and fooled everybody and has you worshiping him for the next you know thousands of years while his archons roam about and jam your internet and make people do wacky things Mm -hmm. um it's crazy that actually i've been asked by people 
And and guys, just just you know, don't take this literal. This the show is about bouncing ideas around. So we're gonna mind bend a little bit again. But I've actually had people hypothesize as to prayer. Uh, uh, like, is it mm. opposite? Yes. You know, you, I've seen you, that as you, well. See? No, are I've I've heard many people say that because yeah. and not even religious people, just, just the concept yeah. of admitting weakness itself is almost like contrary to the original message of i would argue christianity which is empowerment and that you mm -hmm. are god and that the power is within you you don't need a supreme authority to beg for help and that that's mm -hmm. actually keeping you in an infantilized arconic mm -hmm. type of energy right um right. and that and the whole thing is just really like the whole thing is just kind of like a a grand kind of disempowerment uh, effort that the mm -hmm. Gnostics realized was taking place, you know, as they were being persecuted by Rome, who ironically adopts Christianity for the Roman Empire, and then it becomes mm -hmm. the Catholic Church, and then it becomes mm -hmm. the imperial right. war cry for the Crusades. And it's like, where do we go from love thy neighbor to the Crusades, you know? Well, <sighs> through the no, archontic path. Because ancient you cultures know. actually did follow the feminine energy for a lot of years. All the temples were pretty much, sure. you know, to, to feminine energies. The whole, like, goddess, who I am woman, Harry Moore, you know, rawr. Mm. <laughs> it's just that sort of, yeah. there was that sort of mentality. Goddess statues are showing up everywhere. It, it, I mean, right. that are going back 60,000 plus years, 30,000 years ago. Yeah, even in, um, you know, original... Um, I guess you call it Canaanite religions from which, you know, Yahweh himself was, uh, yes. or El at the time, yeah. was a, you know, deity. You had mm -hmm. Asherah, who was a goddess with the, you know, yes. bird body, yes. half woman, half bird. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why is she not around today? Well, because a king ordered her statues to be rooted from the earth, right. you know, and punishable by death if you worship her or anybody right. else. So, Right. Um, and it's interesting, too, because a it's lot all of the Old Testament stuff, I mean. Right. You know. Yeah. I mean, I look at the Old Testament, you know, after reading particularly the work of Vatican translator Mauro Biglino, who would know better than anybody um, from translating in ancient Hebrew to Italian for 35 years, right. that really the Old Testament upon close read is the story of extraterrestrial colonization of this region of Earth. Right. And a war between the Elohim, you know, and as Mauro always says, I mean, the title of his Italian book is the Bible does not speak of God. And it's true. That's an mm. English word that was crowbarred onto it after hundreds of well, years of theological debate. Yeah. Right. And they were corporeal. They were very powerful. I mean, that's what Elohim means, the powerful ones, mm -hmm. you know, and Mauro does a very good job of showing that it's not just his opinion. You know, even words mm -hmm. like the Holy Spirit uh, or Ruach right. does not mean Holy Spirit. It actually means, you know, heavy object, you know, or Kavod right. means heavy object of war. And it's so when Moses goes to the top of the mountain to see Yahweh's Kavod mm -hmm. and he has to hide behind a rock so the fire doesn't burn him. It's like, what are we talking about here? Right. Are we really talking about a the glory that's how that word is translated as moses needed to see the glory of god mm -hmm. but if you just put the words in like mauro does he says he wanted to see the kavod of the elohim right right, so right. it's like that's what it actually says mm 
lot of misinterpretation. We put this other thing because we didn't have a reference point in the Renaissance when these were, things were being translated because we didn't have flying machines. So we didn't know like what uh, uh, kavod. Okay, it must be like a spirit or something like this, you know? Because mm. only in the 21st century do we go. Wait a minute. That sounds a lot like, you know, a mm. UAP or some sort of government craft or some sort of thing that we could imagine even through science fiction that these mm. people had no idea what they were reading. When Ezekiel goes up in a whirlwind, they're like, oh, that's just like a thing. And it's like, yeah, but really read that because mm -hmm. that whirlwind has a specific you know wheel that comes out of it and then it's a person in a dome that looks sort human -like. of like ezekiel's wheels yeah right you know i think absolutely that yeah. these elohim you know these powerful ones mm. were a big part of that you know and that the, the gnostics were talking about that that we were deceived by extraterrestrials or i'm not even saying extraterrestrial i mean the only evidence i have of that is allegedly in one translation mm. and i take all of them with a grain of salt because sure. i think there's only like five people that can translate sumerian cuneiform correctly right but allegedly in one translation from an author i read who had the credentials to do it he claimed that the origination point for the Anunnaki or Anuna mm -hmm. was what they called beyond time, that that's how he translated it. Well, time that is a man-made concept. Right. That they came from, not from Earth and beyond time, and they had a star system on the cuneiform tablet. Wow. So maybe, yeah. you know, right. and were these the same people in the Bible? I don't know you know, because it's a time discrepancy, or it's very likely that during the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century BC, mm. when the Bible was largely written, the Old Testament, they were just copying the Sumerian stories, you know, right. and we think, oh, well, that happened to them in this time. And it's like, well, maybe they were just repeating for their group, the stories they were told by the Sumerians. Because before that, they didn't believe in spirits. In fact, if you look, as Morrow says, they didn't even have the concept of monotheism. It mm -hmm. didn't exist until Platonism, you know? Mm -hmm. And then they had to cr crowbar Plato on top of this and say, oh, well, Yahweh was actually the Platonic creator, God, and Jesus. And it's like, you're taking a lot of leaps of faith, pun intended, to, you know, take something mm -hmm. from Greek history and say it applies retroactively to the old testament and call right. it theology and say well that's what jesus was talking about and uh it's a big yeah, guess and if you weren't did, there like, <laughs> right let me get edgar casey <laughs> no yeah, he has a lot to say about that actually but now see you know i think it's just it's it's if it's if it's impossible for people to look at even the most you know foundational aspects of society like the abrahamic faiths and question them like could mm -hmm. yahweh have been an extraterrestrial that's not a silly question that's right. literally what the bible says he was and how he behaved as an right. extraterrestrial invader who flew around in a kavod right that's what they say i didn't write it right we just never knew Look that because yeah. they'll never tell you that because no. it's been translated thousand times thousand versions and you have to go to the interlinear version to learn that. 
from a Vatican translator who himself, I think, was fired because they didn't like what he said. Right. But if you think that the Vatican doesn't know that, you're the crazy. The Vatican knows everything. They have. You're crazy. <laughs> exactly. They they have all of of these archives from the you know the Library of Alexandria, which had important you know writings from cultures from all over the world used to go there to study and 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 share and information what's really weird is i had never seen i had seen a few of the edgar casey readings used in this book in other books throughout the decades hmm. like any book on edgar casey in atlantis it's basically going to use maybe half of the 500 readings right but i found an edgar casey reading the only one on the Library of Alexandria, which was very interesting. And he said to a client, you were one of the original founders of this library. But he says, it wasn't built when you think it was built. It was built when Atlanteans left before the final destruction. And it's actually was the oldest repository of knowledge in the world. And that part yes. was in italics and bold. Well, see. So we, we know think, where that's oh, sitting just, yeah yeah and we think it's like okay like it was just the oldest library you know for us today and it had the mediterranean worlds but casey that was a ten thousand year old library collection by the time of its first destruction accidentally by yeah. julius caesar when he was getting down with teenage cleopatra right. protecting right. her from her crazy right. brother and right. he set the city on fire and it accidentally <clears throat> caught on fire. Library. But the real destruction where it went to the Vatican, I'm almost certain, was okay. when Orthodox Christians under Theodosius ordered the destruction. And they right. specifically dismantled it systematically, raided it, pillaged it. I'm sure carted all that shit to the Vatican. Yeah, they, and then they have it all. Absolutely. Burned it to the ground. Absolutely. They have it all. Right. Just the fact that... that you know, it, it's it's known, even scholars have said no, information from all over the world. So mm. with that being said, to me, uh, very much indicates the fact that there were people were coming even maybe possibly from the Americas going back and forth. I mean, oh, there's, absolutely. you know, so of course, all this is sitting in in the archives without a doubt. And, and, and I, how many other you know, like in Romania, for example, and Egypt was the same, where they found, you know, libraries intact. Romania, underground library, intact. Wow. Wow, What's I hadn't there? heard that. I, uh -huh. did, I did hear recently yes, of, yes, a yes. of a Tibetan yeah. library that's supposed awesome. to be one of the oldest in Tibet. And yes. nobody's translated like 99% of the books in there from ancient Tibetan to English. So it's like, what what's in those books? You know, I always tell people too, Carthage before the Roman. Oh no, come back. We're so close. <laughs> I think we've got some quiet. Michael, you're frozen. You're frozen. I can't, I can't hear you. You're frozen. Hey. I know. There, you're back. Okay. <laughs> he froze. I'm sorry. No, that's I'm okay. sorry. <laughs> um, Everybody's well, going, I tell no. people too. 
I tell people too, um, you know, it's not just the Library of Alexandria, like Carthage had one of the largest ancient libraries in the world too. And yes. the Romans burnt that to the ground along with the entire city. And I don't think they preserved those records from my mission. And that would have had all the records of the Carthaginians traveling to Brazil or to Lake Superior in Michigan right. to Copper Mine, perhaps, or, you know, all over the place where you find Phoenician yes. artifacts and things like this. Yes. So it's like, who, who knows? You know, right. like they didn't keep permanent records in the way that, you know, anticipating, oh, well, we got to keep these because in 20,000 or 10,000 years, you know, somebody's going to need them. It's just like, look, we're at war. And do Hide I want to save Cleopatra? Do I want to save Cleopatra or do I give a shit if some old library that I've never heard of exactly. burns down? Like, yes, you know, exactly. just like when the allies. <laughs> Oh boy. Right. Thank God. Frozen. <laughs> Hello. Okay. Yeah, you're you're freezing up like crazy. Somebody's out to get you. <laughs> Divulging too much, too much. <laughs> you're frozen. Hello. We're we're coming up to, okay, we're coming up Hi, to Michelle. the top of the hours. So before we lose you completely, <laughs> why why don't you tell us um where can people find the book? How can people contact you? Do you have anything else coming up? Did you did you hear anything I said? Um <laughs> so Okay. I well, got the last up. part. Where can people contact you? Thank you. Thank yeah, you. we're yeah. coming up to the top. We got of through that. most of it. We got through most of it. We can do a part two. I would love to. Okay. I would love to. We'll do I would love to do a part we'll, two we'll... on maybe like specific questions from your readers. You know, I don't like just just lecture. I like to learn yeah. from the audience. Oh, we. It's very very round table here. We love to give you know, the guests as much time to speak as possible because it, it, the, the time goes by so quick and sometimes there's so much it information. Does. You just want to get it out. So we're always happy to listen and you could watch the interaction and, you know, if there's questions, we definitely put them up for you. You get a lot of comments and things like that, which is great. Oh, and, great. and of course our audio listeners were in FM stations, our audio, uh, we have a huge audio um, international audience That's as great. well so yes no thank you so much it's a real honor you know to get the message out and you know i would just tell people if you're interested um you know for those of you looking um you know there, there it is in a better <laughs> there's a hard cover you got the hard cover i got the soft cover here <laughs> um, you know i made that cover myself on my phone and it was a complete accident i, I love it <laughs> contrast like all the way accidentally Right. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, wait a minute. That's I, like I did the good. comet. That's wow. like the comet. I'm leaving it. I swear to God, that's a true story. I was like, that was just a serendipitous thing. And I could never reproduce it. I've tried many times. I lost well, the original file. You were this is what it was supposed to be. It's true. It's really weird. Um yes. But yeah, yes. if people want to um, you know, contact me for anything, any questions, you can go to Michael Leflem with my last name is one word 
com, and I have a contact form. And if you're interested in the book, um, it's available on Amazon. It's called Visions of Atlantis, Reclaiming Our Lost Ancient Legacy. Or if your grandma gave you a Barnes & Noble gift card, you could use that as well at Barnes and & Noble. And yeah, it's available actually um, in audiobook, Kindle, and hard and soft cover, and also all those formats in Spanish as well, if you prefer that. Wow. That's and excellent. Spanish audiobook with a really great narrator. It's like straight from Telemundo. I don't know where I found this guy. I love it. <laughs> I love yeah. it. I yeah. love it. I would definitely be pleased if, if you would return. And because there's just so much more, you know, yes. you know, to the book. And we could definitely That's just go the over intro. That's I, just a little intro. Exactly. The appetizer. We haven't gotten really into <laughs> the main course. The which meat is on really the bone. Weird. We haven't done it yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, the mutants, I, the genetic engineering, all of that, the destruction, the two-way crystal, how it works, how it functions. Uh, that's quite weird. That's quite weird. So, it, yeah. See, so much, so much. Well, we will do it. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll throw some dates at you and um, mm. we'll we'll definitely do it again because it's one of those things that it just, it does leave you hanging. And that's how I felt when I was reading the book, you know, just sitting Good. there. I think I, I think I did like Good. 200 pages just in the first round. You know, you're not the first person to say that. And that means so <laughs> much to me because I think I must have spent a year editing right. the book. It was pretty much done because it's so difficult to keep these things interesting without just boring people with look at this ice core sample and this and Plato. This is the dimensions of the king's chamber. And it's like I really wanted it to stand out and be like a thrilling, like a Michael Crichton novel, but based in reality. And so thank you so much because that was what I was trying to achieve without compromising my integrity as a scholar. Right. No, you did. You definitely succeeded. And uh, it was it was just a joy to read it. And I would love to talk about it more. And we can even include some photos from the book, a few as we go along sure. and make it really interactive if you'd like. So I love that. Yes. Yeah. There's some things that you really have to see to believe, you know. Yeah. Um, well, I think we can people go over really that. like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. I love it. We'll do it then. I will message you and we will pick another date. Um, now call my agent. Call my agent. I don't take calls myself <laughs> anymore. Call Your people Hills. can talk to my people. Right, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I like I that. Don't, I don't do those things anymore. No, of course right. I do. I'm a self-published author who does all of my promotion. So yes, of course, I would love to. I love it. I love it. Okay, well, I will be I will be in touch and I will have links for you and so on. Um, you know, the, the I'll send you some like the audio links as well because watch that take off. So with the oh. listeners, yeah, that'll be good. No, I'm so excited because as I said, you know, I love reading other people who are open-minded. I love reading their books, you know, and I'm still yeah always learning you know i never admit that i'm the last and final resource on this subject i'm the last in a long line of much more intelligent much more accomplished atlantis scholars that i'm very lucky to have read and encountered but right. i wanted to just both bring those people that were forgotten to a new audience mm -hmm. and take the cutting edge discoveries of the last two and three even five years so much has come out 
and show right. people, look, this is the time to really pay attention because I think it's becoming almost undeniable that at least we could say there probably was something, whatever you want to call it, and it probably did get destroyed. And these ancient stories are probably talking about a lived reality. And we should take that seriously because it could happen again. Mm -hmm. History does have a way of repeating itself. That's all it does, according exactly. to the Yugas. Exactly. Yeah, so. oh, there just, you go. Sounds, yeah, it sounds like a scary thing. We'll have to touch on that a little bit more. That's really interesting. Well, you just come back. You never die. You just keep coming back. But I know. You just recycle. When you're in the destructive period, it's quite yeah. horrible. And, you know, you're faced with kind of extreme choices. You know, right. you could live an extremely good life. You can live an extremely hedonistic life today. And, you know, if you're a politician, right. get away with it. Right. You tell the truth and people could think you're crazy and you could be ostracized. Um, sure. But you've yeah. got a lot of choices. But, you know, as Edgar Casey said, it's not like you're punished. It's just you're just playing a game against yourself. Like there's That's no true. real right or wrong. It's not like Baal was qualitatively worse than Jesus, as hard as that is to sound. It's just what do you Ooh. prefer? <laughs> Ooh. Well, yeah, that's a tough one because, you know, it comes down what do to you conditioning, prefer? right? You, yeah. you have no control over what goes on. You just have control over how you deal with it. Yeah, that's right. And in Edgar Casey's estimation and in mine, I mean, I don't mean to insult Christians. I have tremendous respect. I think most people think I'm a devout Christian because I'm always talking about yes. Jesus and you should pay attention to what he's saying, what he really said, not what you think he said. Right. But I think that's really true that even Edgar Casey would say, like, he just represented the paragonal example of goodness right. expressed in one person. So did the Buddha. So right. did all these people that came, you know, right. among ancients to teach them. Mm -hmm. But that you really needed the foil of a Baal and a Baalzebub and, you know, these Sith characters because they were the perfection the of the yeah and they were just acting the best they could with the knowledge they had in a perfection of evil mm -hmm. and you have to respect that you might not necessarily like it mm -hmm. but it's almost silly to say like well i want all evil to go away because then it's like well probably you could want it you can hope for it but the chances of that happening are very unrealistic yeah. unfortunately and i think a lot of people want it to go away because they're secretly tempted and that's another side story in the atlantean saga is how so many of these people like that nice priestess she started off in the temple right. before you know it she's putting felt, people in that ash water and drink went, your own ashes went for the cookies <laughs> we're on the dark side yeah, yeah. oh my that's god atlantis atlantis you know easy right. bake oven it's like right. but that's what I think really was the kind of final lesson and final message of the book to the audience is that maybe you're so afraid of evil because perhaps you see it in yourself and that acknowledging that it's neither good nor bad. It's just a kind of mm, antimony or something like that. Uh, as you would, would have to understand your shadow self, which is definitely a thing. Right. And that the choice really in the end is, you always have that choice, you know, it's like they yeah. did in Atlantis, just like we do now. Do we want to start World War Three? Do we not? Uh, mm. We'll see. 
you know. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. Well, Michael Laflemme, thank you. This was just a fantastic episode. Honestly, I just I was so anxious to speak with you after reading the book because there's, mm. the, it, it is it was really a phenomenal book. And anybody who's going to order it, remember go and give Michael a review. Reviews are very important. So good yes, reviews. Thank you so much. Actually, <laughs> do a good review. <laughs> So oh, I like all reviews, even even if you like it, don't like it. I, it helps me, really. I always it love does. it. You know, some the first review of the audiobook, somebody said, uh, I included one special effect at the beginning of water. And this guy goes, I can't listen to an audiobook with I immediately called my producer. Please turn the volume on the water down. That was a one-star oh. review, and now it's fixed, and everybody loves the audiobook. And everybody's so happy. Wow. Yeah, I don't really I don't care about a number on Amazon. I really just care right I want people to be happy and enjoy the read or the listen. Did you have fun and did you learn one thing you didn't know? If you can do that every day then you're a better person, I think, you know. Thank you. I say it all the time, learn something new every single day no matter how small, learn something new. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's right. Well, that's all well, you can do. Thank you. Thank you for, for joining me tonight. I will be in touch with you and we will schedule a part two. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. It was a pleasure. And thank you so much for the audience questions. And I'll see you next time. If you we will. make it. You will, absolutely. All right. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Good night, Michael. You too. Well, that was a really, really interesting segment. I am... Lots of comments from out the, the different um, chat rooms. And again, to put them all up, it's hard when I can't read them for our um, audio listeners. Um, but um, we'll just have to do a part two because there's just so much more information coming out. So thank you, Michael LaFlemme, for joining us this evening. Thank you to Folgers Coffee for sponsoring the show. Thank you to Justin Snicker and Steve McGinnis for sponsoring. We appreciate you so very much. Um, if you guys want to get a hold of us, please, the outer realm contact at gmail.com. Again, the outer realm contact contact. I'm gonna put this up and just save myself some work. Here we go. The outer realm contact at gmail.com. So give us your insight. We appreciate your comments. Like, share, and subscribe, comment. Thank you, Tamara. Absolutely. Um, tomorrow night, for the first time, we will be bringing on Augie Nost, who is the co-host of the broadcast Team Alpha show slash podcast. And he's an interesting guy. I, I co-hosted on the Church of Mabus one evening and uh, had a lot of fun with him. And um, he's definitely has a lot he wants to talk about. So when he approached us, I thought, yes, let's do this. It's going to be a lot of fun. And he's he's just really, really um, nice guy. So he's going to be touching on his UFO sightings and experiences as a pilot, uh, his thoughts on Project Blue Beam. And should time allow, he wants to talk a little bit about time travel and time slips and things of that nature. So hopefully time will allow. But until then... Enjoy the remainder of your evening. Have a great Thursday day, and we shall see you back here tomorrow night. Thank you, and good night.